Maximize Your Influence is your podcast for the latest persuasion, sales, and negotiation techniques. Our mission is to help you influence on command, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Your host is the author of Persuasion IQ, Laws of Charisma, and the best-selling book, Maximum Influence. Now, your host, Kurt Mortensen. Welcome back to Maximize Your Influence. This is podcast number 377. As we talk about persuasion, motivation, influence, the things that we should have learned in school. Welcome back, everyone. We've got a great interview lined up today. It's Michael Reddington, and we are going to be talking about some things that will change everything for you. Let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael Reddington, he's a CFI. If you don't know what that is, that's a Certified Forensic Interviewer and president of Inquasive Inc., a company that integrates the key components of effective non-confrontational interview techniques with current business research for executives. Using his background in forensics and his understanding of human behavior through interrogation, Reddington teaches business to use the truth to their advantage. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Kurt. It's great to be here. Oh, it's good to have you. We just talked about human behavior, human nature, but we have to start off with the question of the day, of course. Tell us, please, what is the worst vegetable on the planet and why? Has to be squash. And, for, and can I just don't like it? Is, is that a good enough for the reason why? Like it just, no matter how many times I try it, no matter how many holiday now, squash is a pretty, there, that's a pretty broad. I mean, is that all of the above squash? Is there a certain squash that makes you more queasy than the others? I'm going to err on the side of caution and just say all of the above. That way I don't find myself <laughs> someplace I don't want to be at Thanksgiving dinner. Okay. I'm with you on squash. They try to disguise it with so many things, but you're like, dude, this is still squash. Yeah. In fact, my wife tried spaghetti squash the other day. I'm like, no, it's still squash. <laughs> it is. No getting around it. No getting around it. All right. We'll go with squash today. I like that one. And yeah, you could just go with that. It just don't like it. And that's human nature, right? I just don't like you or... And that's, that hurts the persuasion process. We've been talking about that on the show. You just People just feel it. They don't know why. They don't know why they're resisting. And that's a big part of your world. But let's get into the world of persuasion and influence. And you know things have been changing over the past few years and even decade. What do you see when you work with persuaders, even leaders? What is the, the biggest blunder you see? What is the biggest mistake that's being made now? Is it common? Is it still the same? Or is there something new and different? When it comes to the, the biggest blunder, I think there's probably several categories that fall in, particularly when we look over the last 12 months and counting as, as we're still here, hopefully getting towards the end of our pandemic environment. The modalities of communication changes and the pressures that we all face change. A lot of these common errors manifest themselves in similar ways or, or from similar foundations. And when it comes to the attempting to persuading others and falling short, Generally, we find that if not the root cause, one of the core causes behind the failed attempts is the persuader, whoever is trying to get somebody else to change their mind, commit to a new path, is doing so from their own perspective, from their own expectations, and with their own emotions. So instead of raising their situational awareness, instead of putting their ego in their back pocket and taking a goal-focused approach to the entire conversation. Maybe they're speaking or acting immediately. Maybe it's emotionally. And certainly we see when it falls short, it's they're communicating from their own perspective 
which then creates their the opportunity for their communication attempts to miss the target and then perhaps for their frustration to grow and take them further off course. No, that's important. Their own perspective, their own emotions. I like how you added that, their own emotions, because we see through our filters and assume everyone's doing the same type of thing. Now, when you look at that challenge, and it's human nature, we do it across the board. Every culture I've seen, every country I've been to, it's our own perspective, our own emotions. It's kind of like our default setting. What is the best way to get past that default setting to actually get ourselves in their shoes to become a better listener? Is there a, a strategic way to do that? Several. And you're right. It is how our brains are wired. You know, surprise to nobody who's listening to your show. We're all wired to prefer our own ideas over other people. We're all wired to prefer comfort over discomfort. And we're all wired to listen for opportunities to defend what we already think and believe and disregard information that runs contrary to that. I mean, that, I think that's pretty commonly established across the board. So now the question is, how do we overcome that? You know, if it's hardwired into our brain, it's going to take an intentional repetitive effort in order to begin to overcome these shortcomings, if you will. We try to do a couple things. First is we work hard to really maintain a learning mentality. Whether I was working with investigators, whether I'm currently working with CEOs or sales professionals, anytime I hear somebody say, I've got it all figured out, we're in trouble because we don't, we never do. Not only a journey of learning, but application as well. So we might have a great deal of it figured out, but there's got to be at least something out there that we probably haven't put our finger on just yet. So if we maintain that learning mentality and go into every conversation asking ourselves, what can this person teach me? What can I learn from this situation in order to improve my perspective, my understanding, whatever it may be? That's one where we can try to consciously override some of these biases and shortcuts that we have. The second one that we do, and, and again, this is something my former teammates and I developed in the interrogation room, at least among ourselves, is that prior to any significant engagement, if I have to persuade somebody and there is at all a likelihood that they're going to prefer their idea over mine, I don't start the preparation by asking myself, why should they commit to what I want them to do? Because if I asked myself, why should they, what I'm really doing is transposing my perspective onto them, hence still focusing on where I'm coming from instead of truly trying to bridge that gap. And while there may not be a perfect solution for bridging that gap, what I do instead is I ask myself the opposite. And actually, there's two sister questions I like to ask. The first one I ask in preparation is, why haven't they already agreed to what I want them to? And then the second one that runs with that is why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they commit to what I want them to? And then I want to build my communication strategy from the answers to those two questions. Do the best I can to embrace their perspective, the best I can to embrace my perceived weaknesses or threats, if you will, and build my communication strategy from there. Now, that's good info because you're putting, getting their perspective, you're going to adapt to them, persuade them how they want to be persuaded, instead of just showing up and Vomiting your perspective, which we say on the show. But let me ask you this. I like the concept of interrogation. You're digging, you're getting the information. Is there a fine line between once they sense they're being interrogated, that they're going to resist you and still interrogating and finding their perspective and getting that information? What is that fine line to where we don't cross it and create resistance? That's a great question. And inside and outside of the interrogation room, that fine line is really in the same place. It's how do we communicate with people in a way that helps them protect their self-image and allows them to save face considering the totality of circumstances that the conversation is taking place in? 
So I might be talking with a CEO. I may be talking with a, a VP of human resources. I might be coaching a sales rep as a client or interrogating somebody, even interviewing a victim of a crime. In all of these situations and more, everybody has their own self-image that they want to protect and defend. And the majority of people, if they want to come off of their idea, especially if they've taken a position already and come towards your idea, they've got to be able to save face and do that along the way. So really, again, a little bit regardless of context, there's, there's some application-specific considerations, of course, but we want to communicate with people in a way that allows them to be comfortable and really have that idea ownership. When I think of influence, really what I think about is encouraging people to make the decision that we want them to without relying on title force or coercion. And I want to do that in a way that generates commitment, not compliance, because we know compliance is temporary and is going to generate resentment. So that key comes down to how do we do that in a way? How do we ask our questions? How do we preface our questions? And how do we even illustrate our expertise, our perspective, where we're coming from in a way that allows people to choose to continue to engage with us and not focus on ending the engagement as fast as possible. Okay, let's let's dig a little deeper into that. So you want people to choose to engage. You want them to be comfortable. We, How do we build that trust, keep people comfortable in this age of COVID when people are scared to get to sell them something or they're going to make a mistake? How do you keep that comfortable? Will it be an interrogation or a sell situation and keep that trust, especially now? Little things matter. Again, I'm I'm sure I'm probably preaching to the choir and and echoing thoughts of of many other experts in the field, but the little things matter from our initial approach to how we engage in every single conversation in between, especially if it is a sales situation, which you referenced, and we're we're trying to build that customer support. One of the phrases that I carry over from my time in investigations world is illustrate before you investigate. As anytime we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation, we go to what we know. That's natural. Is in that business development or, or sales world, often we know our organization, our product, our services. We know that the best. So when it comes time to engage with somebody else, as soon as our stress levels rise, as soon as we don't feel uncomfortable, as soon as we have even a second of doubt, it's easy for us to fall back to what we know, which might be just to, as you said, vomit up whatever details we think may be valuable based on our perspective or start just throwing questions at people. It's important to remember that questions can be perceived as invitations or attacks. So when we say illustrate before we investigate, if we can take the time and be a little bit more patient and intentional with our approach to illustrate our expertise, not just of our world, but for our customers' world as well, and depending on the environment, their customers' world as well. The more we can illustrate our expertise, but now we're communicating with people in a way where we're giving them something before we ask them for anything and doing so in a way where we are building the perception of our authority and credibility prior to asking the question, which helps them lower their guard and provide us with more information that we're looking for. Got it. So Maximiders, I hope you caught that. We fall back to whatever we know. So we tell you to listen and get perspective, put yourself in their shoes. Logically, you know that, but when you feel nervous, you're not prepared or go south, some direction you're not expecting, you fall back to that default setting, that vomit, the things you know you're not supposed to do. Just understanding that's going to keep you from doing that. And that's very important to understand. That's why we see so many people do that. 
I heard you say before that uh, people react the strongest to what they hear first. Explain that to us and how we could use that. That's a great point. Thank you for bringing it up. So without going too far into the deep ends, generally, we are capable of judging somebody's trustworthiness and fitting them inside one of our pre-existing mental models, categorizing them, between 100 and 500 milliseconds. And we also carry expectations of value into every engagement that we participate in. And those expectations could be positive, negative, or neutral. So often what happens when we say early, we're talking immediate, like introduction stages of conversations. We're already categorizing people. We're already beginning to determine where we think this conversation may go and how valuable it may be. If there are any seeds of distrust, if there are any seeds of skepticism or previous negative interaction, whatever it may be, we are hanging on to the very first words that we hear in order to begin to determine as fast as possible, does this person fit within my expectations and mental models or are they violating those expectations? A simple example. In fact, I was having a breakfast training session with somebody this morning and we were talking about a situation where somebody basically told this gentleman that I could bring you in for the, con the consulting services or I could hire a junior level employee to basically at least handle the administrative side. And he said when he was prompted with that, his answer was, yeah, but. <laughs> as soon as we say, yeah, but to somebody going back to, you know, under stress, we go to what we know, they're not listening anymore. They know that everything that comes after but is going to erase the initial agreement. It's going to counteract what they just tried to say. And now we're starting an argument. And I can guarantee you that's not what this gentleman was trying to do. So as we worked how to handle that the next time, it was, all right, well, the next time somebody says, yeah, I could hire you or I could just hire a junior employee to take care of the administrative path, look them right in the face and say, you're right, you could. That is certainly an option that you have. Because now when they give us the objection, if you will, they are literally waiting for bated breath for us to push right back mm -hmm. so they can get into the familiar, no, you can't, yes, I can, give and take that is, is likely what they wanted. So instead, by us now responding with, yeah, you're right, that's exactly what you can do if you want, completely violates their expectation, takes them out of their initial game plan, and now they were preparing for to push back. The argument is too strong a word, but they were certainly preparing themselves for that give and take. It's now gone. We took it away from them. So now we have that moment where we can reframe the conversation and begin to move on. So as we think about, again, helping people save face, helping them protect their self-image, if we literally write out a sentence and say, which part of this sentence are people likely going to emotionally react to? And where do I want that emotional reaction to occur in my statements? Do I want it to occur before I give them what's very important for them to hear? Because if that's the case, they might not hear it. Or do I want to tell them what's important for them to hear first and put the emotional reaction at the end of the statement so that way they react after they hear what I want them to hear. And those little switches can really make a big difference. That's a great strategy. The, the, yeah, I was laughing at the yeah, but because we hear that one so much. And then the way you respond to objections, we want to get the fight. You're just like, deflect it. Yeah, you could. You could. They're like, well, yeah, I could. You're like, okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's yeah. just do it. So you mentioned like, you know, that first impression, that introduction, and the, you mentioned the words of seeds of distrust, which I love, the mm -hmm. seeds of distrust. So let's talk about that for a second. What are some of the nonverbal things people are doing in that initial 
encounter, that, that first impression that's planting those seeds of distrust? We can all get in our time machine and go back to a point in time where we could meet people personally. Yeah, and we right. could shake their hands and I guess we'll fast forward. From we're there. hoping, we're hoping it's going to happen again. It, it feels that way. Knock on wood. I don't want to jinx us here. There's several things we can do. So literally from the approach, are we approaching some, like if you're walking up to somebody, are we walking up to them at a high rate of speed? Are we walking up to them? So nose to nose, like we're literally, our nose is lined up to them, 12 o'clock, perfectly square. When we stick our hand out, how are we shaking their hand? How are we managing our space, our proxemics? These are all things that right out of the gate we want to pay attention to. Of course, we can get into, you know, dress for success and groom for success and and know somebody's name and, and some of these other things that we talk about. But little things that we can do, like if I'm approaching somebody, I want to make sure that I'm not approaching them too quickly. I'm approaching, like if I'm waiting in a, in the lobby or I'm waiting outside somebody's office that when it is my turn to approach them, I'm doing so at a speed that shouldn't be perceived as confrontational. As I get in range, if you will, within maybe, you know, eight, 10 feet, something like that. I want to make sure that I'm not approaching them nose to nose. If we're going to be allowed to legally do handshakes again, really what I want to do is I want to line up my right shoulder to their right shoulder. So I'm just a little bit offline when I extend my hand. So that way I don't have that accidental feel of confrontation. We know from proxemics that we want to be roughly three to four feet apart when we greet each other. So I'm going to give somebody a a polite handshake, of course. But then when I disengage that handshake, I may stay where I am. I may take half a step back just to make sure we have that space reasonable what feels to be appropriate eye contact based on the audience. I mean, there's there's little things that we can do. The volume, tone, speed of delivery with our voice. You mentioned as you've traveled the world, you know, as we travel the world and even as we travel the country, there are many different cultural norms for how people communicate. And I certainly don't want to try to mirror that and come across as inauthentic and just grenade my credibility. But what I want to do is be cognizant of it and adapt within my authentic range in order to get close to matching it as opposed to mirroring it in order to help build that connection. Good pointers. It's all about that nonverbal, especially that initial reaction. You mentioned the space. I like that you're not approaching them too fast, like you're going to try to attack them. But of course, keep your space and and eye contact is going to definitely vary by culture and just got to be careful with that. Just remember, if you're looking at someone 100% of the time and it means you're either Angry or falling in love is probably not what you're looking for as a persuader. <laughs> so careful of that one. But let me bring out, let me just shift gears here a little bit, especially now in this crazy culture we live in now. One of the things you talk about is being honest without being hurtful. I mean, that's one of the things we need to do either with a prospect, with a family member, with someone we disagree with, which people aren't doing very well now. So how could we disagree? How could we be honest without really being hurtful, still maintaining that relationship? Anytime we can use illustrations, we should be ahead of the game. Oftentimes, we don't realize that the word you is one of the most potentially offensive words in the English language. You know, if you and I are talking, I say, Kurt, I hear what you're saying, but what you're missing and what you don't understand and what you need to realize, I only need to say that word you two or three times before you start disliking me in direct proportion to how many times I do say the word you. It comes across as an extremely parental communication approach. To the best of my knowledge, most adults don't enjoy being treated like children. So what we want to do is use more of an illustrative approach when we can. So instead of saying, I understand where you're coming from or what you're missing is or what you need to see or what you need to understand, 
if we can use an illustration that might sound something along the lines of, thank you. Quick aside, it's really hard as long as you're not sarcastic to get somebody angry at you by saying thank you. (laughs) It tends to level set the conversation right there. So if you share something with me that I don't agree with, and I start with thank you, and now transition into an illustration, often when people do sit down and talk from varying perspectives, it may be hard for them to separate the emotions and experience that they bring in from the task they're trying to achieve together. And when we look at the task we're trying to achieve together, so now what we're doing is we're literally taking the people out of the conversation. I know I'm not the only person that says focus on the issue, not the person, focus on the resolution, not the consequences. But in doing so, that gets back to helping people protect their self-image because we are hardwired to defend ourselves. So if we can build this around an illustration, if we can limit how often we say you, if we do remember that people react the strongest to what they hear first, we should be more successful. As a semi-comical addition to that, which I I say semi-comical, but I mean it 100%. Often what we tell people is, especially when they're emotional, whatever the first words are that come into your mind, swallow them. Don't (laughs) say them. Because there's a strong likelihood that whatever comes to your mind first is going to be emotional and based on your perspective and potentially not very helpful at all. So swallow those and then think about a more productive way to say it. Yeah, you're going to get in trouble real fast, especially in relationships. So (laughs) there's good relationship advice right there. First thing you want to say, swallow it and move on. What's the one thing that I've missed here? What's the one thing you want our listeners to know? When it comes to influence, for me, influence is a long game, not a short game. I don't know in your experience what you've seen and how your interaction with people Oftentimes when people come and come to me and they're asking questions about persuasion, they're looking for that trick. They're looking for, you know, that magician, snap my fingers. Quick and it's fix. Done. And that's, one, it's not one and done. We say that just doesn't happen that way. You're it, right. It doesn't. So it sounds like we're probably on the same page. Is that situational awareness and really begin to play more of a long game and understand how can I adapt how I communicate with people in order to help them change how they see a situation, change their perspective, maybe about the people involved, really focus on the goals we're trying to achieve together and work our way towards it in order to create that commitment over compliance. And within that, now we can be more cognizant of the delivery of our message, the timing of our message and these different pieces. If we can just help avoid causing people to be embarrassed, we should be far more successful. And that's one thing that generally people don't think about going into an executive's office and trying to engage them on a business development opportunity. Well, if we go into their world and act like we know more than they do, it may come off as arrogant or embarrassing. The same thing in our personal relationships, same thing coaching our team members. So if we take that long approach, we really focus on creating commitment over compliance. And we remember that along the way, embarrassment could be the biggest fear that derails this whole thing. We should be more successful. All right, Michael, appreciate the great information and taking us in a direction where we could really become more persuasive. So where can our listeners find out more about you and what you do? I appreciate you asking. They can find more at inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E. And they can connect with me personally for anyone that's interested on LinkedIn, Michael Reddington, CFI. Thanks for being here today. Enjoyed your information. Maximizers, take something you've learned today, apply it, use it. Your ability to persuade and influence comes down to your ability to present yourself. So please let us know what you think. Contact me at Kirk at MaximizeYourInfluence.com or go 
to MaximizeYourInfluence.com. That's home of Influence University. You can take your free Persuasion IQ assessment. Get the free new edition of Maximum Influence. Just pick up a little shipping and handling and just check out what we are doing. So become more influential, a better negotiator, learn how to motivate others, and go out and persuade with power.